Housing After Dark is a production of Shaffron Strategies. It is produced and edited by Tina Lee with audio technical assistance and equipment from Trun Amaton. It is currently sponsored by nobody, but if your organization or company wants to help bring this podcast to an even greater number of dedicated housers in and beyond California, reach on out. I'm your host, Alex Shaffron. Thank you for tuning in. And remember that you never have to listen to me speak. You can always just read the transcript. Welcome to an extra special insurance edition of Housing After Dark. I'm your host, Alex Schaffern. One of the goals of this podcast is to shine a bit of extra light on the full extent of our housing system, pushing beyond the issues that folks think of as quote-unquote housing. We recently explored the state of housing journalism, and today we dig into one of the most important ingredients in housing, insurance. Joining me today are two people from very different corners of the insurance and housing question. Justin Dove, a longtime insurance broker and area vice president at Gallagher, and Zach Taylor, assistant professor at TU Delft in the Netherlands, and a scholar of climate finance who has focused extensively on insurance. We dig into California's insurance crisis, how it impacts housing production and not just existing homes, and what the public sector and industry need to do to ensure that our housing system has the insurance it needs to operate in a challenging climate. All right, Justin Dove, Zach Taylor, welcome to Housing After Dark. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. So Justin, let me start with you. Um, And we're going to start with the Housing After Dark tradition of people telling us a little bit about themselves and in particular kind of how they got into housing or in your case, how you got into the insurance industry uh, that specifically works on housing. Sure. Well, my no one ever grows up as a school kid and desires to be in the insurance industry. They somehow fall into it. Um, my case is ultimately that way, but I am a, a legacy, I guess, in the insurance industry. My grandfather worked in the insurance industry. He was an engineer by trade and worked for insurance companies on the underwriting side. And then my mother has actually been in the insurance industry for over 35 years as well. And so they both really desired to get me into the insurance industry. I fought it often through high school and college, um, but ultimately did an internship at the company I am to this day. And it seemed to be a fit and the rest is sort of history. So we now have a very engaged corner of the Thanksgiving dinner table, the three of us, um, which, you know, much to the demise of the rest of our family. You know, it's interesting, actually, because this is a theme that just came up in a recent podcast recording I did with Gloria Bruce, um, the former director of East Bay Housing Organizations here, about you know her kind of securitist route, my securitist route, getting into our corners of the housing industry. And it sounds like uh, – and it was a similar theme. I, you know, I don't think a lot of people grow up necessarily – either wanting to or even seeing a lot of the important professions uh, that go into making housing, I would include insurance as one of them. Um, but I'm glad you're here. Um, we, the people of California, are glad you're still in California selling insurance uh, because a lot of companies are are leaving. And so I thought that was maybe if, if we could start just to help folks understand a little bit more about the California insurance crisis and what's going on. So insurance companies are leaving why are they leaving and what is the biggest challenge uh, for insurance? At least we'll start on the homeowners or the building owners. Sure. Well, it, it's a it's a dynamic and fluid situation that's really been building up for more than a decade, I would say. 
not specifically in California, but really the acceleration of the challenges that consumers are facing in California has really been happening over the last 24 to 36 months. Um, and and the, we find ourselves in a position where it's very difficult for consumers, both homeowners, but also commercial businesses to buy property, liability, and other insurance uh, policies in California. That, that's for a variety of reasons. Um, one of the main factors is the weather. The weather we are experiencing now is different than it historically has been. We are seeing a higher frequency of severe events occurring in the insurance industry. We really deal with evaluating exposure to the frequency by which events or occurrences, claims, losses, et cetera, may happen, how, how frequently they happen. And then also when they do happen, how severe they are, how big the events are. And what we're unfortunately encountering at the moment in the market is a frequency of severity on a track that we just have not historically seen. And so insurance companies are really grappling with that. It's manifested in California, you know, most prominently in the news about wildfire, but there's there's also flood and extreme rain and wind and the the weather is just behaving differently than it historically has been. So what I would say to the listeners is that we are in a very interconnected marketplace, the insurance market, it is a market. Consumers that are buying insurance in California are also very much influenced by the fact that there's you know, adverse weather with winter freeze in Texas or hurricanes in Florida, tornadoes throughout the country or wind and hail in Colorado. And so while there are things and weather that is happening in California, the insurers are very influenced by those same types of events that are happening elsewhere in the country and really around the world. And so the market is historically tried to diversify geographically so they could sustain losses from hurricanes in Florida by, say, writing property insurance in California. And what we're seeing is, unfortunately, there's there's weather events that are causing damage and losses in Florida in the same year that they're having wildfires in California. So the insurers are just, they're struggling to maintain profitability. And so the the reaction from insurers is to do a few things. One, they can raise the price. Two, they can change the policy terms and conditions. They can choose not to cover something or cover something a little less, or they can they can really take their ball and go home. And what we're seeing certainly in the in the homeowners insurance market is is a is a lot of companies are starting to take their ball and go home. I don't personally believe that that is a permanent thing. I think it is a temporary period where insurers they need to refile new rating. Uh, methodologies and pricing models. All of these things have to be filed with the states. They have to file new policy forms. They're going to have to retool to do insurance, to, to provide insurance profitably. And unfortunately, in California, many insurers have not done so profitably. But again, for the listeners, that same concept is happening really around the country, which is why insurance pricing challenges exist for housers all across the country. And again, it's it's not just weather related. It's the really the cost of everything, the cost of a slip and fall, the, a, a claim, a lawsuit, litigation. All of these things are escalating in the cost 
of addressing them and the time duration to go through them. And so all of those things combined are putting pressure on pricing and what we call capacity. Capacity is an insurance and insurer's willingness to provide insurance limits. So when we as a consumer want to buy insurance, we need we need limits. We need their capacity. And what's happening right now is insurers' willingness to provide that capacity is constrained. And consumers feel that all over the place in many different ways at the moment. Thank you so much for what is a really clear explanation. And I want to get into some of the politics of this, some of the solutions, and then even in some of the reasons why you and Arthur Gallagher are remaining in California. And but before I get that in a in a kind of housing after dark tradition, um, I want to make sure that we get to the complexity of the problem. And sadly, uh, that's the ensuring existing buildings is only a piece of our challenge in housing. So one of the things that I've learned as I've dug more into our housing production challenges and try to dig into the housing industry is just how prevalent and important insurance is as a kind of key ingredient in making housing. And the more I talk to developers and architects and modular builders, the more I learn that they are also having crises. So can you explain a little bit about sort of the role that insurance plays in the production of housing? And are we having the, uh, are the problems the same there? Is it, is it also about the weather or is, or I know issues like litigation, for instance, are an important thing. Um, what's going on in our housing production system and why is insurance so important to it? Certainly, it's, it faces a lot of similar challenges, but different ones as well, more specifically to you know, the nature of construction. I think what's important for listeners to recognize is at its, at its core, insurance is, is a mechanism of a risk transfer, right? So parties will enter into a contract or a business relationship, a joint venture, a business will endeavor to do something, in this case, build housing, and that poses risk. And so the the stakeholders will assess the risk and in some cases will take some risk, right? It's risky to do things. And so there's some tolerable risk, but then some of the risk, a lot of the risk isn't tolerable and it may not be tolerable to lenders or investors, tax credit investors, cities, counties, municipalities, funding sources, federal stakeholders, et cetera, people in the community, the, the individual organizations themselves, whether it's owner, developer, contractor, subcontractor, everyone has a different interest in the development and they all have different approaches to risk. They have different balance sheets, financial capacities. There's a variety of factors that come into play and really collide on a, on a real estate development. And ultimately, a large portion of risk is is desired to be transferred out of those parties' hands and, and to really insurance companies. And so insurance companies will evaluate the risk and the risk is manifested as you know property insurance risk, so physical damage to buildings, fire, water, et cetera. It can be liability risk, injuries or damage that occur to other parties. It can be a variety of different financial risks, employee risks like workers' comp, a number of a number of risks are presented and consumers go to place or transfer that risk to insurance companies and so that at its core is the insurance transaction now what what is happening with real estate development and housing production why is it becoming more challenging well 
there's no doubt that the weather again is playing a factor when the when wildfires occur when the wind blows when the heavy rains come we are seeing projects during the course of construction get physically damaged there was certainly a spat of arson related events uh, uh, throughout the bay area from 2018 to 2020 that also caused a lot of havoc in the insurance market but to your earlier comment once projects are built, there can be claims that arise out of the work. There can be defects in the work, defects in the design that can cause financial problems. The buildings may incur damage and the owners may have to move residents out or you know, replace the interiors of the units, the windows, et cetera. So all of these things uh, play a role. And the, the ultimate influencing factor behind this of, of the challenges in the in the housing production is the cost of securing that insurance is really rising. Um, it's rising beyond the reasons for the weather, but the sheer cost that we are seeing these projects take to build the cost as a uh, on a cost per unit basis is extraordinary, and so and has been escalating for some time. Also, much of the new housing production, certainly that we're seeing in affordable housing is, is wood frame construction. That's not to say that it, it all is, but, but the majority of it is. And so what we're seeing is when it is physically damaged, the cost of replacing it is coming at a higher cost than it ever has been. Again, the cost of materials, the cost of labor, the cost of escalation, so on and so forth. All the challenges that our housers face on the front end to actually just get the deal to go if they do have a problem and it gets damaged, it's costing more than it ever has to fix. And so that how, that goes into the evaluation of, of the risk and how much an insurance company has to charge by way of premium to take on that risk. Um, some, of this, some of the geographies that housers are building in are challenging by way of literally their physical location near a fire zone or some other hazard. But also from crime, some of the urban settings that we are seeing some of the housing being built in pose real challenges for insurers. Insurers, particularly for wood frame construction, are extremely concerned about certain zip codes and the crime activity of people getting into the sites, maybe attempting to steal materials or whatever, but inadvertently unintentionally causing other damage to the building or structure or, or even causing a fire and burning it down. And so that is priced into the, the risk transfer. Ultimately, these risks, which are risky for the consumer and they desire to, to transfer, the insurers are still willing to take on. The challenge is their evaluation of that risk. They are assigning more weight to the risk than they ever have for some of the th these things I've mentioned. And the, the price of the premium is getting very challenging to sustain. And again, I'll put particular emphasis on, on wood frame construction. Um, it's, it's very expensive. And there are ancillary costs that are often coming with providing that insurance during the course of construction where insurers are wanting big, tall fencing. They want security cameras. They want security guards. They want a variety of elements to safeguard the project. And those things too come at a high cost. And so what our housers are struggling with is this new reality of insurance being historically a relatively manageable cost as a percentage of the work is now a very substantial cost as a percentage of the work that must be accounted for very early on in the development 
pipeline process uh, or development cycle and has to really be understood and managed because it is escalating and it is impacting the ability for projects to go. And so we're really struggling with that reality. Um, and it, it is definitely impacting the overall development cost of producing housing um, without question. Yeah, it's been a, a fascinating journey for me to to learn and from developers and from architects. Again, the story of an architect I know who couldn't, whose lawyers would not let him design a condominium project because the threat of litigation from construction defects was so high that his essentially professional insurance policy couldn't cover it for, or again, modular developers who ran into both weather-related damage to the boxes that they had and crime-related damage due to vandalism. Both of the things that you talked about, again, that combination of human-created climate change and human-created human change, uh, really just making it difficult and not, not just more expensive. I think there's a study, I've been doing some work around construction defect laws and programs in the state of California. I think there was a study from Denver uh, from about a decade ago, uh, and so this is very old, that construction defect issues were adding at least $15,000 per unit in cost. Uh, it seems also these are types of costs that can escalate rapidly in the middle of a project if things change. So it's just hard to emphasize enough, uh, in at least for me, how important insurance is to our production questions uh, and how a, just a really narrow focus only on land use laws as the kind of primary barrier for housing production really just blinds folks to the to the kind of more complex reality of what it is to build housing uh, in California and the United States uh, in this current moment. Um, there's just so many other costs and so many other risks besides the obvious clear risk of having your project dragged down through, you know, either through bureaucracy or through political opposition. Uh, there's just so many other forms of risk that are causing problems in the system. Actually, on, on note of risk. I think that's a really good point to bring in Zach Taylor because I think risk, Zach, has been some of your, a little bit of your, or the discovery risk or your interest in risk is a little bit in your backstory of how uh, you went from an urban geographer to an urban geographer who focuses a lot on insurance and climate. So welcome to the show, Zach. Tell us a little bit again in the Housing After Dark tradition about how you got to housing and how you got to insurance. Thanks, Alex. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks, Justin, for that really interesting uh, overview of many of the facets of the role of insurance and housing, um, not just existing housing, but our, our production system. It's really eye-opening. My journey to insurance is somewhat accidental. It's a coincidence. About 10 years ago, when my academic career started, um, I started out with this, this hunch that um, our housing finance system was going to have some problems uh, with accommodating climate change, uh, to say the least. Uh, I grew up in Florida uh, with hurricanes in a coastal environment, always with a deep appreciation of how ecologically fragile the place is, but also with a sense of how important housing and real estate is to, to the, the working of Florida. Um, famous historians have said, you know, Florida's main product is itself. Right, it's a real estate state. Um, it's it's all about the Florida experience, uh, sand and sun and sea, and with that comes all sorts of risks. At the same time, um, you know, I was very much a child of the global financial crisis and the housing crisis, which was really formative for me, um, being on the front lines of of experiencing uh, foreclosure uh, and seeing the impacts that had on communities. So, being tuned into this issue, I set out to try to understand where these issues came together, 
uh, on the ground in Florida. And I thought my study was going to be predominantly with urban planners and real estate developers and the like, and mostly focused on, on climate adaptation programs. Uh, but very, very quickly, it became apparent that um, insurance and particularly reinsurance was seen as a sort of keystone of, of Florida's both way of dealing with risk in the housing system, but also Florida's future. Um, I can remember one CEO of a major building company in the state telling me, you know, we can have all of the resilience plans we want in the world, but at the end of the day, it's reinsurers that are going to determine uh, what gets done in the state and whether or not the state has a future. And I'm always probed folks like this figure ask, you know, what do you mean? Why is that? And, and what are the vulnerabilities? And, you know, I get a lot of good answers, but generally speaking, reinsurance, that's insurance for insurance companies, was really a black box to folks. So what were the issues happening in the sector? Why was it that they were so important to uh, the housing system, but also, you know, local government fiscal capacity, uh, employment bases, et cetera? These kind of connections weren't really apparent to people. They were often implicit. Um, and some of the, the dynamics that Justin mentioned that are happening and playing out globally were sort of off the radar or, or not quite in view for folks. And that rabbit hole uh, kind of opened up. I jumped in. And uh, ever since then, I've been looking at various ways in which um, the finance system, um, and particularly the housing finance system, is responding to the conversation around climate risk um, in, in various ways. So that includes developments in the insurance sector, the reinsurance sector, um, debates about financial innovation in that context, and what they mean for the housing system and for housing affordability in particular, but also questions about financial regulation, real estate investments, uh, pension funds, really trying to understand how our entire financial system is responding to these challenges in the built environment and, and what it ultimately means uh, for, for places. Uh, so that's really my journey and how I kind of got to thinking about this big puzzle. Maybe we can dig into this issue of reinsurance again, if this maybe is the most complex and weediest piece of today's conversation. Can you just give us, Zach, a, just a little bit of a background on reinsurance? And then Justin, I'd also love to hear you know, your experience with it to, how, to what degree you in the insurance industry are engaged with reinsurance. Again, reinsurance is the insurance that insurance companies have on their insurance policies, correct? Yep. And just to make it more complicated, reinsurers even by insurance. <laughs> well, we'll maybe spare everybody both levels of details and it has a different name even. In, in essence, uh, in, in Justin can definitely uh, tell the story just as well, if not better than I can. Uh, insurance companies um, have a few different ways of, of dealing with the risks that they, they take on when they sell you and me a policy. Um, you know, and, and they're regulated. Uh, so they save a little bit of the money they collect uh, from you and me. They put it in the bank account in case they have any claims to pay out. Uh, they invest a little bit of it often, and that's how they make their money, uh, quite a bit of it. And then they buy reinsurance. They buy their own insurance. They pass on the risk. And uh, that's, that's uh, something that happens globally. So uh, reinsurance markets are, are really international. There are major centers like London, you know, you've got centers in uh, Germany and Switzerland, in Singapore, um, all over the world. The basic premise here is that companies want to diversify risk. So the, the idea is that if every insurer in, say, California and Florida can pass on 
20 or 30 or 40 or sometimes 50% of the risk in the form of the premium they collect from you and me onward, that this, this stabilizes their financial position and it spreads the risk all across the globe. So in my uh, PhD analysis, I looked into the books of a lot of Florida insurers that specialize in uh, homeowners insurance. And we see there, you know, it's, it's quite common for uh, an insurer to buy reinsurance from 10 or 20, sometimes more different companies, but really diversify and spread the risk all around the world. And the idea here, again, is to, to just diversify. And a real challenge in that space is to what extent can you diversify? So uh, what is the limit at the table, so to speak? And that's kind of one of the drivers of the problems that Florida's faced, which are echoed in California. Um, our local insurers need to buy that reinsurance, but there's only so much capacity or limit at the table for reinsurers. They can only take on so much risk from Florida or from California before they get uncomfortable, before the risk of losses becomes too high and unsustainable. And that's really a challenge. Uh, there's a lot of ways of, of dealing with that. Um, one of the big focal points of my research has been on financial innovation. So there's something called uh, insurance-linked securitization. Uh, that's basically a, a way of turning insurance risk into an asset class to bring in pension funds and sometimes hedge funds to bring other types of capital to the table as a way of trying to, again, uh, further spread the risk around. Uh, and there are other strategies uh, that have to do with some of the things that Justin talked about, raising costs, uh, limiting their exposure. Uh, there are a lot of conversations about physically uh, dealing with risks by you know, retrofitting buildings and so on. But a lot of what happens and a lot of what's important for understanding this conversation uh, goes on in London, in Zurich, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, where reinsurers are based. Uh, and, and that's where a lot of the, the overall financial architecture of the system is really sort of coordinated and managed. And that's an important but hard to conceptualize part of the puzzle. A lot of the decisions about the future of insurability in Oakland or in Miami Beach are being made uh, across the Atlantic or across the Pacific. So, Justin, from your end in the insurance industry, how does this reinsurance operate for you? I mean, again, we've talked a little bit about all the risk that you're seeing on the ground in Oakland and in Miami Beach and various places. But yeah, how are you all engaging with the financial system? I don't know. I don't want to say above you, but this kind of global reinsurance system. Uh, and how has that changed some of the calculus on the ground for you all over the last number of years? Yeah, it's had a major impact. And again, to just provide context for the listeners, I mean, this is that interconnectivity of the market that just the average consumer is not considering when they go to buy their insurance every year is that they're part of this global system that is completely intertwined. And I'll give examples specifically for Hauser's large insurance companies that have historically insured housers and large property owners um, throughout the country have, and these are the brand names that you would recognize from commercials, the Travelers, the Liberty Mutuals, the Chubbs, you know, the AIGs, they historically would, would take on an insurance, property insurance as an example, on a portfolio-wide level for a, a houser. And back to that term capacity, they would provide the full capacity that they needed for their portfolio. So if they're 
If they had $100 million of, of buildings, they would provide $100 million of insurance. Now, with the rise of, of data and analytics, even AI, which is making its entry into the insurance industry and, and has already started to have an interesting impact, as the weather has changed and have, as losses have become more severe, insurance companies are not wanting to provide that amount of capacity. They're they're concerned about exposure to their balance sheets um, because if they're providing that much insurance, $100 million of insurance to thousands and thousands of real estate owners across the country, when a large weather event goes through, hurricane, fire, et cetera, it, it poses literally balance sheet threats to their organization. And so, what we're seeing with large insurers is their current willingness, capability to provide capacity is, is just much, much reduced than historical trends. We're seeing in California large insurers that might have provided 50 or $100 million of insurance across a portfolio or to any one building providing five or 10. And the reason for that is that is the only amount that they are willing to take on their balance sheet. And so they will give you say 25 or 50 or 100, but it's not coming from them. It's coming from reinsurers. And so the implication of the pricing is substantial. If a large insurer used to give you 100 million and didn't have to go offset that or transfer some of that capacity to a reinsurer, the price is what they rated it at. But if they're going to give you now the same 100 million, but they're not going to take that risk. They're only going to take 5 million of it. They essentially have to go source their own insurance for the other 95. That's going to come at a cost. They're going to ultimately have to pass that cost down to the consumer. So what consumers are facing just at the business level is, do I just take my 5 million from this insurance company and go try on my own to go buy the rest of it to get to the same 100 million? Or do I just stomach the increased and very difficult increased costs that the same company will give me for 100 million and they're just buying the reinsurance on the back end? This has become a huge issue for consumers on a larger scale placement uh, arrangement. And so well, that is occurring for large housers. The same, the same thing is true for smaller businesses and smaller consumers. The same concept has uh, applies to smaller businesses. Insurance companies are just generally desiring to take on less risk, and so the implication of them taking more than they would desire is essentially them having to go secure their own insurance, which is reinsurance, and just pass that net cost down to the consumer. That's become very difficult to sustain for consumers and is a huge reason why the cost of insurance is going up for consumers. It's mainly because the industry on any one account, on any one risk, is not willing to take as much risk as they historically have. I think, you know, you could do an entire podcast series on housing and risk or just risk in the current world. We just live, you know, it's uh, I think it's great in many ways. It's a subject that more and more of us are thinking about, even if uh, we hadn't thought about it before. Um, 
I, so I want to get into this issue of risk and the role of this of the government uh, or the state, which to use the academic term, by but which in this case I kind of also mean the state of Florida and the state of California. But before we dive into that, I just want to make sure that we focus a little bit on some of what you both mentioned, which is one of the techniques that people are using in reinsurance is this exploration of other financial projects. You mentioned insurance linked securities. I'm suddenly having images of AIG of 2008 or 2009. So Zach or Justin, can either of you explain a little bit more about sort of how this risk is working in terms of connections to the larger financial markets, to hedge funds, to other financial tools. Are we exchanging one form of risk for another? You know, are we potentially, are these the types of actions that could lead us towards another type of bubble and another type of crash? Um, I also know that historically in the production of affordable housing, insurance was a really, insurance companies was a really critical source in the post-war era of that long-term patient relatively low return, relatively low risk capital that underpins all housing, right? All good housing, in my opinion, comes from having cheap patient debt that is secure. Are there things that we should be nervous about in terms of how the insurance is connected to these larger financial markets? Are there positive things that are coming out or could come out of these rearrangements um, before we get into this question of regulation and the state? Sure, I can take a first pass. I think it's a good question. And I remember when I was finishing up this research, that's the first thing people would think. It sounds a lot like mortgage-backed securitization. And the logic is not so different uh, in terms of the fundamental design, but there's all sorts of forms of securitization that exist. I think one really important thing to note is the, the magnitude of the mortgage-backed securities market is just so much larger relative to the insurance linked securities and collateralized reinsurance market. So there's really no comparison in terms of scale, uh, which I think changes the systemic nature of the conversation. A lot of uh, this market is still invested in Florida. So it, it might have ramifications for places like Florida, um, maybe California, maybe places like Australia. There are a couple markets in the world that are really more intertwined with insurance linked securities markets than uh, others. So there could be some particularly acute tensions. I think for me, the, the issue is less one of a risk of large-scale financial uh, instability because of you know risk transfer markets and more one of the, the feedback loops that could come with an unmanaged devaluation of assets in which insurance affordability is a factor, one of many, right? And I think that's where there are links to mortgage markets. There are links to municipal uh, debt markets. Um, I think there, the destabilization of property markets, in part because people can't afford insurance. And in the event of some kind of disorderly repricing of real estate assets, that might be a little bit more concerning um, at, a, at a larger level, um, particularly for places like Florida that really do depend on access to um, reinsurance capital to maintain the status quo in their property markets. I think um, this is already the capital costs and availability issues in the reinsurance world are already feeding back into higher costs of living. And I wouldn't be surprised if that does over time change the yeah, the business case, the premise, the possibility of homeownership in certain 
contexts. It's a different puzzle with different mechanisms. That's what I would say. And I wouldn't let the familiarity of the sounding <laughs> name of the financial mechanism be the thing that's the driver. So that's my kind of initial reaction. That's a good sort of life lesson in general. Just because it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck in housing doesn't mean it's a duck. Justin, yeah, anything that you want to add about anything that you're seeing on that financial market side? No, no. I mean, that's really more of the space that Zach plays. I think, again, I, I would just, I would say to the average consumer, we need a robust insurance market that does have profitability. And, and so that is, I think, the, the frustrating experience that consumers have is they are seeing their prices rise. And there might be, you know, the reaction is, well, this is egregious. And these insurance companies are making money hand over fist and not to be an insurance company defender, because by no means am I. <laughs> All right, I'm a broker that represents consumers. But recently in the last three, four years, they have not been making money and that's not good for the consumer market. And so some combination of insurers being able to take reasonable risk, transfer some of their risk at a, re at a, at a reasonable cost, make some degree of investment income, utilize some of these other financial mechanisms to be sustainable at a reasonable profit, not an egregious profit, but a reasonable profit. They need to have access to some of these tools. Otherwise, there isn't going to be an insurance marketplace. Capital and investment is not going to go into the insurance marketplace if investors cannot make a return. And so we need the market to have a reasonable return. Otherwise, insurers will go away. Investment in the market will dry up because investors and capital will, is always going to seek some degree of a return. And so that really is a struggle that is currently happening at the moment in the marketplace. Let's take it home with, I think, the key question that a lot of listeners will want to hear about, which is, okay, what do the states do? What do policymakers do? I'm guessing that there are more listeners that are involved in policy or housers that are involved at the state level than they're involved high up in the insurance industry. And so what is it that they can do or should do? Maybe we can start by explaining a little bit, like what is the role that the state of Florida and the state of California play in the insurance industry? I know growing up, it was about earthquake insurance was one of the first roles that California got into. I know, Zach, from having read your thesis, that Hurricane Andrew led the state of Florida into the insurance business. Can you both explain sort of how the states are involved right now? And then we can talk about maybe how they can get involved in new ways. This is a little bit of an academic framing, but when we talk about risk and how to deal with risk, um, and we think about the role of the state, I, I try to frame this as a sort of a, a risk puzzle, right? So there's risk transfer, what Justin has talked about, insurance, and there's there's risk mitigation. There's, there's materially doing things with risk, like material risk in the world. So I'm talking about land use planning and building codes and all that. And I just want to posit this here first before we drive into the, the role of the state in insurance markets specifically. Because when we talk about the role of the state in insurance, it, it can also be helpful to think about it conceptually. What is the role of the state in this overall big puzzle? And spoiler alert, I don't think we're being as smart as we could be about combining the risk transfer and risk mitigation view, right? A sort of integrated view on risk and the role of different types of state intervention in managing that puzzle. But to speed ahead and be more concrete and to answer your question directly, there are all sorts of different ways in which states um, regulate insurance markets. Unlike other financial markets, uh, insurance is, is regulated at the state level primarily. 
which means you get a lot of variety between states. There are a couple of, of common things that do exist. And, and one of the kind of key roles, to go back to the example you made of uh, earthquake insurance, Alex, the state often provides uh, an insurer of last resort role, um, a residual insurer. Uh, in Florida, we have something called Florida Citizens. So this offers policies to consumers that can't find coverage in the private market. Um, and this is a, a, a kind of key way in which states deal with the limits of private insurance markets. States do other things too. In Florida, there's a state reinsurer, the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund. So any private insurer doing business in the state has to buy placement from the state uh, for their reinsurance. The state has a guarantee fund in case an insurer goes out of business. The state regulates uh, insurance policies, the terms, the costs in all sorts of ways also. Um, and in Florida, the state also uses the state pension to, to invest in insurance products that I mentioned. So the state of Florida also invests in insurance linked securities. So there are all sorts of different mechanisms uh, the state uses uh, from an institutional and regulatory perspective to try to stabilize the market. These change a lot over time. They're often politically contested uh, in complex ways. It's a it's a interesting puzzle and a balancing act. Uh, I remember one Florida state insurance regulator describing it to me as sort of um, these institutions act like incordians. You know, they expand and contract as the market conditions change. So the state steps in and it steps out and tries to create the conditions for a stable market but he's often navigating very conflicting um, impulses between profitability for insurers and affordability for consumers. And those bring out all sorts of different dynamics. So that's a kind of general overview and, and example from Florida. And I think some of the parameters are generally the same in California. Justin, can you give us a little bit of a background on how it works in California? Again, I know we have a similar combination of state regulation of insurance in existing industry in terms of price setting, et cetera, and then some amount of the state acting as the insurer of last resort. But how does the system work in California? There are other mechanisms similar to what Zach described in Florida that California does use. The, the most prevalent is called the California Fair Plan, which is essentially a property insurer of last resort that will write property insurance in high hazard fire zones. There historically had been a very low limit of insurance that the fair plan could offer. And so consumers struggled with the offering of the fair plan. That has recently been changed and the fair plan now will offer a much more substantial property insurance limit, which is great for consumers. However, it's not without its challenges. Um, the product really is designed for fire. Um, so you can get that, but you don't get other elements that are traditionally in a property insurance policy. So there isn't a great holistic solution yet in California for property insurance and high-risk fire areas. Certainly California is trying to make that fair plan product more robust. You know, myself as a consumer, as a California taxpayer, you know, I get concerned with expanding state and federal resources to provide insurance capacity. I struggle with consumers really relying on the government for those types of resources. 
And I'll give you an example of why. At the federal level, there is something called the National Flood Insurance Program. And that was born many, many years ago because consumers, businesses were struggling to get flood insurance in high-risk areas. The National Flood Insurance Program was born to provide a facility to provide those consumers some degree of flood insurance. And that program is called the NFIP. The NFIP essentially borrows money from the treasury to pay claims. It's constantly underfunded and borrowing to pay those claims. And unfortunately, it's constantly wrapped up in just our government's struggles to fund the government. And so like most recently, we've been in uh, a real struggle watching if the NFIP program was going to expire. It was set to expire this weekend. It looks like they just did a, a funding gap measure to provide a degree of an extension for it until February. But every round of these budget challenges our federal government goes through, there's threats that the NFIP flood program won't be reauthorized. And so it, what some of these products are or, or things are designed with great intentions and are intended to provide consumers with a benefit. What I've seen though at the consumer level is if they're volatile, if they're not predictable, that provides uncertainty to consumers and provides real challenges for them. If you have a flood insurance policy and up until just 24 hours ago, if it was going to expire after November 17th, you were in real, real trouble. You had no certainty if your flood insurer was available if the government didn't reauthorize the, the bill. So I'm big on incentives of states and the federal government providing incentives to be a, a better risk. I think there are certainly mechanisms we can, or I would think that we can incentivize municipalities to, to provide better security, better better locales to incentivize housing production in and certainly potentially incentivize developers to build in certain construction types in certain high risk uh, fire zones. Um, I think those are are would be real effective tools. Certainly there there does need to be a degree of a of a quasi public option for certain types of insurance in really, really high hazard areas. I do think there is a place for that. I just, from a consumer taxpayer standpoint, I hope I would hope we can find ways to provide more certainty to those options so they're not wrapped up in the politics at the moment because we ultimately really need the consumers to have reliability behind them. Let me just get this straight. One of the things that you mentioned, which is a kind of common issue when it comes to state provision, which is that, you know, okay, so if the state's going to provide it and it's going to provide it in particular to the to the folks who are least able to get it in the market, in some ways that's the, all the taxpayers are paying for it. And again, maybe something like healthcare people will support because in general, yeah, sure, people are, are in responsible partly for their own health conditions, but often not. They don't create that. We will, as a manner of altruism, support that. But because insurance, for instance, oftentimes you are making a choice to build or live in a high risk zone. We don't want to mutualize all that. So that's an argument that I had heard before and I know, but it sounds like you're, there's another challenge with public sector insurance is because our public sector is constantly being fought over. There's huge ideological battles, especially in Washington right now, is that we can't provide that kind of reliability and stability that the insurance, that the specific thing that is insurance needs, which is 
it sadly passes the smell test of believability, knowing what we know about the current state of politics in the United States. I'm wondering, though, in a place like California, which is much more politically stable, do you think, Justin, that we that there is a possibility of building something that is a more robust state insurance program, not just I think for consumers and homeowners, but also on the production side, something that really that at least figures out a way to mitigate the risks of condominium development, mitigate the risks of modular development and help us. You know, I dream of a very modular housing industry that's producing a lot of multifamily homeownership opportunities, both of which are really impacted by risk right now. Do you think that we can do something like that in California? I, I think I, certainly we're capable of a lot. So I, I'll always bet on on housers and their ingenuity and creativity. I think there's ways to create incentives for insurers to continue to participate in the geographies that our housers want to be producing housing, but for which insurers are just typically skittish. And those are things like incentivizing, again, construction of certain means and methods. Um, Also, maybe providing funding gap financing for transitioning to different Uh, construction means and methods. For instance, I'm a big modular fan. I believe there's a a, a substantial place for modular in our housing production. It produces quickly. It's generally done off-site and there's there's less exposure on-site for it. And so I I think that that all has broad appeal to the insurance market. Certainly building wood frame housing in high fire hazard areas People are still doing it because it's typically historically been cheaper than doing it as concrete. But could there be incentives to build it modular? Could there be financial funding mechanisms to build it concrete? I think there's ways that we can do things like that. If we are going to build traditional wood frame stick construction in some of these geographies, are there financial funding mechanisms that we could create to provide developers access to additional funds to provide increased security, that provide the cameras, provide water damage mitigation, which is something we haven't spoken a lot about thus far, but is a huge problem for insurers during the course of construction is water damage that can occur. There's lots of technologies and tools now that can be installed in buildings to prevent large-scale water damage from occurring, but it comes at a cost. And these are not traditionally cost elements that housers are accounting for in the totality of their budget. And so are there mechanisms that we can use or facilitate to provide funding gap support to secure these additional tools and resources that will make a project more secure, less risky? And certainly in the eyes of insurers, that is going to spur more opportunity for insurer interest in taking on some of the risk. It's going to alleviate some of the um, challenges they perceive in the risk and ultimately create more competition in in the insurance placement. So I, I certainly think there's there's lots of opportunities there. If there it becomes a more robust state type of facility or option, again, if it's stable, I think that will create additional comp, uh, competition, and which is ultimately what we want in the insurance market is we want there to be lots of insurers, lots of capacity, and lots of competition that will ultimately help the consumer. So the degree to which we can create ways to do that, you know, we certainly need to be trying. Well, here's hoping that 
we do start to pay more and more attention to the role of insurance and the role that I think creative state interventions can have in solving some of the many insurance problems that we have on the production side. Again, not to discount the the consumer side or the insuring of existing building. After all, most of the housing units that we have already exist. And obviously, that's a huge problem. But I think this is the sort of underappreciated part of the insurance question and an under, very underappreciated part of the housing production challenge. Uh, one final question for you, Zach. Uh, as somebody who now lives overseas and studies a lot of issues globally, are there any examples, uh, whether from the Netherlands or elsewhere, where you've been impressed by how governments and insurance industries are doing things a little bit differently, given the fact that we're all facing climate issues everywhere? Yeah, I don't think there's any silver bullets. I think uh, the way Justin framed this in terms of looking for all of these tactical opportunities to make smart connections is is really key. And I see similar discussions happening in other places, in Australia, in the Netherlands, uh, and elsewhere. And I think that's a sound way of taking apart this big puzzle. Um, I will say that one thing about the Dutch context that I find inspiring a really good foundation to begin to think through the challenges associated with, you know, basically renovating this country, uh, most of which is below sea level. A really great starting point here is what they call a a multi-layer safety system. Uh, The Netherlands has a really strong tradition of dealing with water. Uh, I don't think that's a secret to anybody. Um, and that involves thinking in, in layers from physical infrastructure as a primary layer to, you know, spatial planning and financial policy as second and third layers for dealing with risk and maintaining a very high level of risk management uh, and risk protection. The safety standard is very high. And here we see also a need to innovate in a lot of ways. Um, this country, like other places, can't infrastructurally resolve a lot of the problems associated with climate change and housing. But there are all sorts of tactical opp- opportunities. Some are technical, some are policy side, um, some are about risk awareness, but ways of reinforcing this. But what I think the essence is that's a great foundation is this multi-layer approach to thinking about safety. And safety is the core of it. So making sure that people keep their feet dry, as the Dutch like to say, is the number one goal that guides the development of integrated policy decisions. That's, in theory, how it works. In practice, it's always tough, and it's tough with all of the the types of transitions we're facing these days. But I think it's a wonderful starting point, and I think it's something that allows the Dutch to adapt uh, quicker. And it makes me cautiously optimistic that things are feasible here, despite the magnitude of the challenges ahead of us. So it's food for thought. What does it mean to think in integrated ways, to think both tactically, but also from maybe a more normative position about what we want to accomplish? Uh, I think there are all sorts of examples in the world, whether it's in the Netherlands um, or elsewhere, where insurers and infrastructure providers and spatial planners and builders and others are working together in creative ways to run a tight ship. And I think that's certainly the case of, of California, too. It, it's all possible. And I think it's good to keep that in mind uh, politically uh, when we, we think about how we might work together in different ways. Well, thank both of you for, for being here for your work, both Zach as a researcher. Justin, really appreciate that you and Arthur Gallagher are still here in California. I hope that you're staying. One final cultural question about insurance. 
Why are insurance commercials so funny? Is it because they're selling something that everybody needs and nobody wants to pay for? It's a really good question. I mean, to be honest, they're not that funny. I mean, a couple of them I'll give you. I'll give you there, Alex. They they make it so difficult to to do the actual transaction, and it's so painful that they they might as well keep it light if they're bothering us on a weeknight or a weekend with the commercial. It's the least they could do. As a homeowner that is turning into his parents rapidly, I thank you both very much. Uh, look forward perhaps having you back in the future because the insurance question and the housing question are forever linked and they don't seem to be going away anytime soon. Everything does seem to be getting more risky and more expensive. That's how you know that this is a podcast in 2023 and not some sort of other time. Thank you both so much. And for everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Justin.